Story number one. Testimony of Three Witnesses, Part Two A Polite Invitation to War. Written by Ludo Mastro. Nine months before the end of Part One Titan Orbital Shipyard Docking Port. The flicker of the pseudo motion caught Lieutenant Commander Thomas Jonesson's eye as he looked into the void. He shook his head and tried to square his mind, understanding that FDL travel didn't generate light with its own eyes, telling him there was a small glint of light any time the ship re-entered local space. He watched the corvette approach the docking port. She had once nice clean lines and subtle curves at radiated speed. Granted, she did have a newer, faster FDL drive, but that wasn't what had marveled at. She was simply beautiful. There was no other word for it. That right there was a gorgeous ship, and he was going to be her XO. Once the docking bridge had extended, he tossed his sea bag down in metal tube and connected the two ships to floating after it. If he paid any mind to his own weightlessness, it was his own no-nonsense approval of not wasting power on artificial gravity for what amounted to a temporary hallway. FN Ashuritaka, Docking Port Lieutenant Commander Johnson flipped over the weightless corridor and landed on two feet in the corvette's artificial gravity before catching one strap on his full sea bag. The young ensign sent to greet him was clearly surprised by the maneuver. The skipper came up behind the young woman and politely cleared his throat. She started noticeably and before regaining her composure. Thank you, Ensign Lynn. Given that I watched Lieutenant Commander adjust to local gravity perfectly, I might add, it would appear that you owe the Chief a small wager. I'll take it from here. She flushed. Yes, sir. With that, she turned and walked away quietly. Lieutenant Commander Johnson couldn't help but smile. He had liked the skipper since they had worked together a few years back on a centaur base. Also, the whole heartily approved of scaring Ensign's witless especially those who should know better than to bet against the chief petty officer. Doubly so, for letting a skipper find out about it. Johnson saluted. Request permission to come aboard, sir. Permission granted. Welcome aboard, Thomas. What did the poor Vatabar do to deserve that, Hiroki? Commander Moritai Hiroki smiled. Half the time she might as well be a page in the academy textbooks. The other half, she's good. Very good. If we can get her to start thinking literally more often, she'll be very fine officer, he paused. So, that's your new job, Thomas. It wasn't a question. Almost in reflex, Thomas responded. Aye, sir. He patted the strap on the sea bag and asked, Any idea why we can still carry these sea bags? Couldn't they be space bags? Hiroki somehow managed to arc an eyebrow, even under the combined weight of several silent questions. They were in rough order. Are you serious? Did you really expect me to dignify that with an answer? Why did you answer your CA's stupid question with less than a minute after reporting to duty? What did I do to deserve this? Um, never mind that, sir. I believe the ship will have a historical wiki on the computer. Other than Ensign Lynn, what else do I need to address? Hiroki nodded. Thomas might have a tendency to ask odd questions, but it was merely indicative of his non-linear thinking. Something Ensign Lynn desperately needed to learn. Not to mention that the chips were done, he was a man that you could rely on. And it was convenient, if occasionally annoying, to have an officer that would make sure that the ship had whatever she needed. 
Thomas had developed a reputation for requisitioning equipment and supplies that would turn even the most flexible of supply sergeants green with envy. Yes, officer briefing at 1400, dinner with the bridge crew at 1900. Other than that, it's a shakedown crew, so there's the list. They extended an arm with a medium-sized tablet. By the way of explanation, he added, the ship's AR interface isn't operational. After a moment, he continued, for the past week, the technicians have sworn that it'll only take two more days. Make that an item on your list. FNS Shirataka Wardroom The wardroom aboard the Shirataka was set up into an informal dinner with a communal table and a buffet of various Asian dishes with a slight bias towards Japanese fare. There was a polite chatter and some laughter. Hiroki breathed in the miso aroma and then said, Ikanakimasu. He was about to start eating his soup when his exo entered the room. He couldn't help but stare. Thomas's face was covered in what appeared to be electronic burns. Well, Skipper, I figured out what happened to the AR system. Unfortunately, there was a small malfunction of a completely unrelated system. Behind him stood Lieutenant Song. Malfunction, my rear. You could have gotten yourself killed pulling that stunt, Captain. Please tell your exo that I am the engineer, not a doctor. If he got his face melted off, that's not on me. With that, she stormed over to the buffet table and loaded a bowl with some soup before grabbing some fish and noodles. Hiroki looked at Lieutenant Song for a moment and nodded, then began to slurp his miso. Thomas smiled weakly. On the upside, the technicians will have this sorted by mess tomorrow. Hiroki quirked an eyebrow and seemed to say, Harindi? Thomas grabbed a bowl of noodles and vegetables before begging the wolf them down. He glanced at the Ensign Lin, who appeared to be very confused. She looked as the two lieutenants sitting across from her. Both appeared to be praying over their food. He shrugged, then asked, Never seen a man pray before, Ensign? She glanced over at him and asked, I guess I just assumed that all religious folks were gone. I mean, there are non-human sapiens and there's no evidence of anything like an afterlife. I don't get it. Do Yaskum, he said with his mouth full. Then, after swallowing, he put the suggestion into practice. He squinted enough to read the nameplate and asked, Hey, Swenson, you Catholic, looks like you're wearing a rosary. Nah, responded the other lieutenant. He's a full-on pagan, heathen, and a heretic. Lieutenant Swenson shot back, and you're a knee-scraping, submissive beggar who doesn't deserve respect himself. Seeing the look of utter shock on the ensign's face, they both burst out laughing. Swenson explains, Jones is there as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. He's a damn fine navigator, but he also has to be our very own wayfinder. Thomas made a mental note to ask why a wayfinder was later. Jones stood up and took a bow, and then said, And Swenson is an astrower. He also is our tactical officer. What you mistook for a rosary is a hammer pendant, unless I'm mistaken. Swindon simply nodded. Thomas replied, Personally, I think it's all hokum. However, it's no skin of my nose. Do what needs to be done, and we'll be good. He pointed to Ensign Lynn with his fork. She was confused as all. Doesn't get why you both still believe in the supernatural. Jensen rubbed his hands together. Johnson rubbed his hands together. Shall we give them a repeat performance of the rousing debate we pulled off of the FNS island? Tapping a device on his arm, Stone said, Sorry, I'm due for the bridge shortly, night watch. With that, he strode out of the wardroom towards the bridge. Rain checked then. He glanced over at Lynn. 
I honour the gods such as Odin and Thor, gesturing towards the door. He honours a singular god that he calls the father of heaven. He looked at her comprehension. I don't agree with the theology, but Jones shared something that stuck with me. Faith is to hope for things which have not seen, but which are true. That doesn't even begin to make sense, said Lenson Lynn, hastily added with a, um, sir. Svensson shrugged. Doesn't have to. Seven months before the end of part one. Doro Tree, Ricklick Forest, Cran Homeworld. War master track of the clan of Lynx opened his eyes. He decided the monk's translation of the older version of the path of the hunt had been correct. He had indeed been able to hear better in the trance-like state. Inhaling, he could smell the earthly scent and the bow's mother and child pair below him and to his left. The peaceful herbivores were blissfully unaware of him. He looked into the near distance and noted the branch on the right height and weight hanging there in the canopy. He tensed his legs muscles and sprang for his target. As he flew towards the branch, a prey ended up slightly behind him. When his two paws came into contact with the branch, he partially extended his claws. The friction allowed him to change direction and slam into the cow's front left leg. He heard the knee snap and felt the middle leg become dislocated. He clawed himself under the stomach and bit into the neck of the burying animal. The calf could do nothing. The cow bellowed and strangled the pry for some time before the choke hole brought it down. As it was collapsing, he swung himself over the cow's back. He reached for his pistol and calmly shot the calf. It would drop several minutes later, praying in pure terror. He leaned over, then tore the chunk out of the cow's throat and savored the experience as warm, salty blood flowed across his tongue. Then, almost on a whim, he roared out a challenge to any others who might come to challenge him for his prey. Hmm, that felt cathartic. Perhaps Warmaster Tank's talk of gods as was a primitive way to understand the psyche. Holstering the pistol, he pulled two devices from his belt. The first was a simple homing locator that would summon his anti-gravity sled. The second was a plasma life which hummed with and activated it. Perhaps it was a bit of a luxury, but... Then again, how often was one invited to hunt on the Emperor's own grounds? He started a rough butchering of the animal. By the time the sled arrived, he was done. Once the sled was loaded, he pulled another device from his belt and attached it to the middle left leg of the still unconscious calf. The calf's homing beacon would allow those with the science cast to study the animal migration patterns of the Emperor's hunting preserve. As they transported the meat back to the ancient temple, he contemplated the status of the path of the hunt. Most now considered it an ancient relic of a less civilized age. However, Warmaster Crook had died to show the need for its revival. After the emperor named him Warmaster, he started training with the monks who lived in the mainland of the old temple. They no longer offered sacrifices to the gods as their predecessors had. They now offered the knowledge of history to those who were with enough wisdom to listen. The war master considered as a better option. Since coming to the temple, he had learned that war master Tang was unlikely to have been a single historical figure. It was most likely the path had been written over centuries. It certainly read that way. The beginning was about hunting animals and appeasing the gods. The middle chapter spoke of small-scale military strategy and serving one's overlord with a little mention of gods. 
The later chapters spoke of leading armies in the service of the emperor, and the final chapter spoke of philosophy. The honorable path was to live as a predator amongst predators. Regardless of its historicity, the chapter on stalking prey pointed towards the next goal, engaging the humans in some type of fight that he could learn what they could teach him, that is, without either side wanting to exterminate the other. He might not be completely convinced that the humans were deadly as War Master Cricket said, but only a fool would ignore his wisdom. They needed to fight without anyone dying. How did one accomplish that? It only one was easy fighting with. Yes, we need to fight like the litter mates. I wonder if they would be interested in a game of war. Six months before the end of part one. Stalking Prey, Wolf 359, near Deep Space Communication Relay, Charlie 137. The science officer, a member of the same cast, quietly spoke. Prepare for re-entry into space. The hypnotic swirl of hyperspace gave way to pseudo-motion of starlight as the ship disengaged their drive. He continued, Warmaster Tlack, the cloak of operations within normal parameters. The human communications installation appears unaware of our presence. Beginning survey. The extremely quiet nature of this crew reflected the ship's name. They were always stalking prey. For of a warrior caste like serving aboard this ship because they found it not to pounce upon their prey. Despite most of the crew being members of the science caste, he was thrilled to learn that they understood the importance of stalking before striking. He cut his own purr of approval short, lest the crew hear him. It wouldn't do to let them know that he was pleased, at least not yet. After a few minutes, the science officer spoke again. Be advised, a small human ship is also present. Interesting. The war master stroked its whiskers. Regardless of what the sire had thought, he found a quite serviceable aid of thought. Declode the begin broadcasting the message. Charging weapons and shields responded the tactical officer, a member of the warrior class. The war master lifted up a paw and drew attention. Now, charge the communications laser in their place. Despite the confusion obvious in the officer's fur, he obeyed. The war master smiled. This was going to be interesting. FNS Shirataka, bridge. I'm telling you, Captain, a ship just jumped into local space. After a moment of hesitation, Thomas explained. I saw it, sir. Hiroki's eye roused at the usual, and usually he spoke as well. Lieutenant Commander Johnson, I'm going to need more than precise explanation. You are no doubt aware that ships entering and leaving hyperspace do not generate light. Sir, I'm aware of the physics. However, I notice the flash of light whenever a ship hits hyperspace. Thomas didn't try to be empathic or pleading. He was just simply tired of telling the truth and watching others look at him like he'd lost his mind. Perhaps that's just how my brain interprets something I can't really see. The commander looked over Lieutenant Jones. He nodded and said, It's possible, sir. One of the things they look for in a Wayfinder program is the ability to perceive stimuli differently. For me, it's hearing. Svensson half-shouted, Sir, ship decloaking at the far side of the relay. Unidentified, charging our forward weapons. Shields are still at 80% designed. With the calm of a still pool, Commander Muratai opened up an AR window. Lieutenant Song, please report the shield status. Yes, sir. The techs know why we aren't getting full power. Something to do with the power conduits. However, we'll still need some time to fix it. 
Enlisted communication technician on the bridge spoke. Sir, I have a message. Let's hear it. In peace we come, in peace we come, in peace we come. The technician added, It's on a loop, sir. Svensson piped in. I'm detecting a small power bolt up on the pier to be a laser ray. Looks more like an auxiliary comms laser than a weapon, sir. Hiroki nodded. Looks like they are serious. Power down the weapons and reduce the power to shields to minimum. Nevertheless, sound general quarters and set condition to zebra. I am not interested in being sucker-punched. The communications technician voice suddenly had heard throughout the ship. It came across as a personal communication. BAR system and through the seemingly archaic speaker system. General quarters, general quarters, all hands man your action stations. The route of travel is forward and up to starboard, down and aft to port. Set condition zebra throughout the ship. Reason for general quarters, potential hostile Zeno vessel. Lieutenant Commander Johnson made haste to leave the bridge. In battle, the XO and CO were separated to prevent a single hit from taking out the command structure. His battle station was a small, isolated console with a full sensor feedback located in the engine room. The possibility of a hostile ship made everything exaggerated and completely unnecessary. Roll to starboard before the lasers launched and the shield emitters, and the energy splashed harmlessly on the shields. Even without them, the lasers would unlikely to be damaged the emitters. The ship completed the attack before reappearing in their fore. It then performed the same slow maneuver to port, striking the railgun replacements. Once again, it turned to the fore position. And the corner of Roki's mouth quirked. I think she wants to play. Do we have any Bacato? Sir, asked Svensson. We need to practice weapons, Lieutenant. What do we have? Stalking prey, come on deck. Sir, they are powering down the weapons I... The tactical officer looked confused. His fur ruffled in unusual patterns, but more telling was the fact that his tail was twitching in irritation. He mumbled, I don't understand. They have the advantage. Well, Master Clack opted to teach using the method of history monks that taught him. Do you think that it is possible that they too understand the need to know their prey before striking? It was perhaps not the best question that he could have asked. However, it was put that the warrior was familiar with. At that moment, the tactical officer nodded. Yes, War Master, I believe they might. That is what we were trying to do, is it not? This time, Clack allowed the purr to be audible. Very good. Now, let's begin to play and see if they can follow us. Here's what I want you to do. After completing the second pass, lights in the human ship began blinking. Dark, almost grey lights were clustered near the areas that had been hit. Bluish ones were showing on the other areas. Unnecessarily, the tactical officer said, Sir, they appear to be showing us that they took damage. Gluck purred to himself, Yes, it appears that the human captain is intelligent enough to play after all. Now the question becomes whether they will shoot back. Avanesh, Shurikata Bridge. Captain, I've got the light showing our damage and the green one showing where we are still good. I think using the backup laser communication array is our best bet for weapons. If we can figure out how to talk to them, then we could send over some targets. Thank you, Lieutenant Song. I'll consider it. Get a message to the relay and have it send a message probe for some diplomatic assistance. We don't want to improvise ourselves into a full-blown war. Aye, sir. One message in a bottle coming up. Also, the station database indicates that they're Kron, a hexapod species that looks somewhat like two-meter-tall cats.
FNS Texan in orbit over the Centaur base bridge. Captain, message in a bottle. Federation encryption. It is coded eyes only. Patching it through to your terminal. Thank you, Ensign. Captain Garcia read the message. His simple patrol crews had just been modified. Ensign, plot hyperspace course to these coordinates. Comms, get Admiral Tobias online. She needs to hear this. FNS Shirataka Bridge Shirataka began a maneuver that ship had never been designed to do. However, the designers hadn't planned on Lieutenant Jones piloting her. He was flying sideways in a tiny orbit around the other ship's midsection. Shirataka's nose was pointed down and the enemy ship giving Swenson the perfect strafing position. Stalking prey, command deck. Warmaster Talak had never seen any ship in a pattern like that. Had the blast been a life fire, the ship could be dissected in short order. Marvelous! Make sure to record that for later review. Show damage and try to match their frequencies this time. Warmaster, another human ship has rented local space. It appears to be a large warship. FNS Shirataka Bridge. Texas, off to port now, sir. Hiritaka nodded and engaged AR system to connect to Thomas. Our friends are here. Tell them not to blow up my new dance partner. I'm busy. Aye, aye, sir. FNS Texas Bridge. The captain, Garcia, activated SCIF protocols as he answered the secure hollow net channel. A life-size projection of his former subordinate, Lieutenant Commander Johnson, stood before him. He smiled for two reasons. He had put Johnson in for a promotion before he left the shipyard. The young officer had earned it. They had been only two Texans at the Titan shipyard and had hosted a weekly game of Texas Hold'em. Somewhat surprisingly, he even fondly remembered the poker games where the young cad had cleaned him out. What's the Sam Hill goes going on over there, Johnson? We're showing a cran vessel popping up our ships with lasers. Do you need assistance? No, sir. They jumped into the system and threw its sublight straight to us. No active shields, no powered weapons. They broadcast, we come in peace on a loop, and we're engaged in what could only be called an impromptu war games with them. Johnson, I'm sure I misheard you. Did you say that the giant death kitties want to have a war game? Thomas shrugged. Yes, sir. Well, that's got to be the most foobar thing I've ever heard. It's been, um, interesting, sir. I'll see if the spooks know how to meow. Let me know if we need to give them a rectal exam with a torpedo. Evanesh, Shirataka Bridge. Jones, do your thing and we can win this. Hiroki's emotion was shining through his normally closed demeanor. Evanesh, Shirataka, engine room. The hyperdrive began to whine in a way that Thomas had never heard. Ah, uh, Lieutenant, what's this thing doing? He might have been whining himself. Just a little... Remember the way you find a briefing from a few months back? The one where we jump into hyperspace with our plotting of course. Didn't like the sound of it. I really don't like the sound of it while I'm standing next to the drive. One of the nearby specialists smirked and turned her head away. Sir, it's safe. Jones will find us a way through. Evanesh took a bridge. Jones tilted his head and listened to the angelic music that told him where to go. He drifted left and then up a little. There. The soprano voice was perfection. Now, he fell back into space, and the song ended. Svensson opened up all of the lasers at once. They scored a perfect hit to the bridge of the Cran ship. Yes! Svensson and Hiroki's screams overlapped. Stalking prey, command deck. The next hit would be decide the battle, but the flea-ridden human ship just disappeared. How? 
he was certain that the humans didn't have cloaking technology, at least nothing good enough for to fool his senses. Yet the ship was simply gone. All Master Tlack's pupils flared with slits were fully opened as the ship appeared directly in front of him and fired all their lasers. He slumped. Defeat tasted like ashes and sand. It smelled of rotten meat. It was horrible. But War Master Grick's words were proven correct. Fighting these humans had been unlike anything that he'd ever before seen or read. It was well worth a bad taste and a smell to learn that. Especially since they could keep their tails and whiskers intact. Turn off four running nights, he ordered. They've beaten us in this round. He straightened. But look at what we've learned. They can vanish like a spirits of legend. That alone is worth the thorn in the paw. Science officer, prepare all battle data for transmission once we get back to the range of networks. He stood up and gave the ceremonial bow to the other ship. Go ahead and signal the large human ship with the Emperor's pre-recorded message. When he considered the fortuitous nature of having a human warship observe their battle, the stray thought of the gods padded through his mind. No, that was a city superstition, wasn't it? FNS Texas, Bridge. Sir, we've got a partial translation. Let's hear it, Garcia responded. Greetings, human master of war. Humans will honor us to play war. Master of war, undecipherable, will conduct the first SWAT. Winner pounces on terms, loser pounces on where. Vocalize on this frequency. He glanced over at real Admiral Tobias. Ma'am, I'm sure this will be a headache for the suits. However, we'll be in a stew one day or another. What are your orders? With a light French accent, she said, Invite them to the centaur base for coffee, I suppose. After all, that was a very polite invitation to war. End of story.